Not So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. We've got another two-part episode for you this week. It's the deeply moving story of Sanjay Lazar, who lost his family in the Air India Flight 182 bombing in 1985, and there's a new book series about it all. We'll put the link to the first book in that series, On Angel's Wings, in the show notes. Suhag Shukla is doing the interview on this one. So without more ado, here are Suhag and Sanjay. Hi there, Suhag. Good to see you. And uh, thank you very much for having me on your show today. Thank you, Sanjay. Um, thank you for sharing your story of pain and loss and resilience. And I'm really hoping that um, our audience is paying attention because it's almost like what we're going to be talking about has vanished from the public imagination and um, the importance of remembering our history so we don't repeat it is exactly why when I heard your voice on a Twitter spaces, um, somehow I found someone who knew you and, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us. So, so let's start at the beginning. Um, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Okay. So, Sohar, I was born in Bombay, now Mumbai, of course, um, 1967. So it's a long time ago. Um, my Both my parents were at that time flying with Air India. My dad was uh, a flight purser at the time. My mom was an aerostar. She quit and, uh, you know, uh, started, you know, got married, delivered us, me and my younger brother. And then, you know, life just went on. I was schooling in Bombay. And uh, then I think, you know, my parents divorced. So they were divorcing. So I went away to boarding school in Missouri. And me and my younger brother, yeah. So that's in the north, uh, you know, Uttarakhand. Uttarakhand and, and you're about how old right now? Right now, 55. I mean, no, I'm sorry. At that point, when you're... Oh, when at, you're that, at that point in time, I was uh, roughly about eight, nine years old. Okay, nine years old. So, so we, were, we were not that young, but... We were not old enough, I thought, to go to boarding school at that time. But old Me enough to you. remember. Old enough to oh, remember. Absolutely. You know, because what we went through was terrible. You know, we were two homely boys who had been, you know, brought up in urban Bombay and, and you know, in Juhu, which is a very tony neighborhood with lots of friends. And most of our friends today are film stars. And, you know, we did a lot of those, those Juhu things. And to suddenly get plucked out and thrown into a boarding school in a very good boarding school, I must add. You know, uh, patrician Irish patrician brothers school with about 120 years of history, um, built British. So uh, it was a great school, lovely huge campus, two three hundred acres, and you know, like one of these big American schools you'd see up in a mountain somewhere. You know, very posh schools. But uh, the first year was okay, but we missed home terribly. What happened in the second year was, you know, we started getting used to it and enjoying it. Um, that was 77, 78, 78, 79. In 80, we came back and that's when tragedy struck my life for the first time. I had a young, younger brother, his name was Sandeep, of course, and he was born two years after me, a year and a half after me. And uh, whilst during, you know, being in school, you know, we play around and he was in a different class, I was in a different class. And I was decently good at sport and running. And he was also good, but he started de developing a very high fever in around April, March, April of that year. Very high fever. We had our own infirmary in the college premises and uh, they treated him, but he didn't recover. And, you know, he started twitching involuntarily. 
at that time, you know, a physical twitch. And then it became progressively worse. And the doctors and the school didn't really notice it. And then it went on for a couple of months where he started getting so violent that he fell down and hurt himself. He was treated. And I told my dad and my mom at that time. And, uh, you know, whatever happened, happened. And then thereafter, one fine day, he came to me in August of that year. And he cried. And I said, what happened? And, you know, he was actually, somebody attempted to rape him. And that was, you know, and shocking. Bigger boys, of course. They wanted to, you know, sodomize him. And he got away somehow. But that shocked the hell out of me. And I got to a telephone. You know, in those days, we didn't have mobile phones. I'm talking about 1980. It's literally 45 years ago. And you're and so my, far from your parents. Absolutely. It, you know, in those days, there were no flights to Missouri or Dehradun either. So people had to go to Delhi and then drive five, seven hours to get there. The road was small and narrow. So I called my dad and I said, listen, something serious has happened. He's unwell. He's got this pitch and we need to, you know, and he's being attacked by bigger kids. Of course, I fought with them, but they were really much larger than me as well. And we spoke to the teachers, the brothers, nobody did anything. My dad flew down immediately and drove up and then saw the condition of my brother who had had a fall, was bleeding, had cut his head, cut his, you know, in escaping from these people. And uh, that's when our life started taking an entire different turn. And uh, my dad had, you know, huge fights with the school, but pulled my brother out then and there and flew him to Bombay. And you know, and we they they got to Bombay. I stayed on to finish my exam, which was a month and a half away before I returned. And when they got to Bombay, he, you know, they uh, by then my parents had been divorced. My dad remarried. Uh, so did my mother. And um, what happened was they took him to one of you know at that time India's best neurologists and. Um, the doctor said, you know, there's really no hope. He's got about 48 hours to live. And that was, you know, a shock for my father because here's a boy who's not even 11. He'd not even celebrated his 11th birthday. And he said, what do you mean? He's just had a fall and hurt. He says, no, there's something wrong with him, which I can't pinpoint. But I can see his neurological system has collapsed. But this happened in a matter of two months, you know, and from his first fall to this incident, which shocked him. And then, uh, so we said, obviously, there's got to be something else. And and then we, uh, they, I was not there. They went, took a second opinion. They took a third opinion. They came back to Dr. Wadia, who was probably the most preeminent neurological, you know, neurologist in India at that time. And he said, listen, this is a new disease and we don't know too much about it. But there are doctors in Sloan Kettering who do know and they're doing a lot of exploratory research in this. So you need to find somebody who can... Now, you know, my dad, we're not a rich family. We were middle-class uh, people. My dad had a salary job and so was my stepmom. So they, they said, anyway, admit him into a hospital. And they admitted him into Jaslok Hospital because we stayed in Juhu, but Jaslok is in South Bombay. But it's, it was one of the best hospitals at that time. And that was the only hospital that Dr. Wadia attended to. So he wouldn't come to the suburbs. So we had to, and my dad 
took the trouble, went there, and we, you know, it was his youngest son, and we, you know, have to make every attempt to save him and see what we can. And then therein began, you know, his struggle and our struggle because then they started exploring and doing tests and they could not, they had to literally sedate the boy, my son, my brother, who was like a son actually to me because I looked after him all those years um, and, and, you know, testing to see what could be wrong with him. And my dad was in Air India and we had two doctors in Air India who were the head of our medical department. One was a Dr. Vijay Kumar, one was a Dr. Puri, who was extremely close to uh, Mr. Sunil Dhan, Nargish Dhan. Very close. And, and uh, at that time, Mrs. Dhan was undergoing, you know, she was going through cancer at that time, if you remember. Yeah, over 1980. And he was, you know, treating, getting her treated and flying doctors in from New York. Of course, they're big shots. So they had, so Dr. Puri was their family doctor also and neighbors to Sunil Dhan. So, you know, he said, why don't you talk to him and, you know, we can get some help. But my dad was, of course, extremely, you know, hesitant. So Dr. Puri spoke to him and Datsab himself called my dad and said, listen, you want to do some exploratory tests, I know. So I'm sending a doctor from here to New York, to Sloan Kettering. You do, so we had, you know, do whatever tests you want and we'll send it for biopsy there. So they, you know, they had to take an entire spinal uh I don't know what it is there. Sample you know, or, yeah, I'm not in medicine. Yes, yes. But. <laughs> and, and take it in ice or, or freeze it and carry it to New York. And of course, India was helping. But, you know, to reach Sloan Kettering and talk to a doctor and, you know, get somebody to examine it, it needed, you know, it needed, you know the Dutt family uh, to pitch in and assist. And, and that they did that. Their doctor, doctor traveled with it and they did the test. And this is still 1980, December, November, December, you know, I just not yet returned. Uh, my birthday is on the 17th and I was coming on the 15th. I think they, they were about to plan to do this test, but my younger brother who was still coherent and could speak when he was not drunk and stuff like that, or sedated, said he wanted to wait for me. So I came back and, you know, uh, celebrated my birthday with him in hospital. We had a you know small little. He couldn't walk. He had to, but uh, he was you know he'd gone from running a, a half marathon in March to being crippled and bedridden like a vegetable in November, and you know, unbelievable that a human body a, a child can can degenerate so fast so quickly. And it also and doesn't give you time to, to process to process, and especially when you're so young. Absolutely. And of course, you know, my stepmom had now taken over his entire care and she was there. But uh, we we went through that and then we did this test and it was so excruciatingly painful to see how they did it and extracted a part of his spinal fluid plus his spine. And then, you know, there were three doctors doing that procedure and then they took it to to America, New York. And, and Sloan Kettering came back and they... They said it was um, something called multiple sclerosis, panencephalitis, SSPE. Now, the SSPE is the real killer in the disease. And get this, it's, you know, I didn't realize it then. They said it's the measles virus. But I, it's years later I found out it, it's a very rare disease, extremely rare. In fact, one in, you know, millions. It's not that it happens every 100,000 people. 
the measles virus we all get measles as kids the measles virus stays back in some people especially adolescents and young kids and it just gets shocked into awakening at you know with some incident so the doctors believe that maybe this attempt on him you know, shocked him and and brought this virus out again and he really went into a spiral this the virus goes and settles in the brain then and it starts degenerating the entire nervous system and there was no cure at that time for it and you know i checked up yesterday there's still no cure for it so it just you know it through him and we stayed in the hospital for 8 months we the doctors at sloan catering do not looking after him because of mr and mrs dot uh prescribed treatment program they were bringing importing medicines from argentina and you know hong kong and and new york for for us uh and you know it was it was tough it's a tough period it was a arc period in our lives also because i gave up studies to sit and look after him so that you know they could work and they could fly my dad was flying so it was an extremely extremely difficult period and you know wake as a 11 12 year old 11 year old you don't you know really think that you'll wake up every morning and take your brother carry him to the bathroom bathe him and you know wash let him you know pass more. but that's what you know we did i did and then my dad and mom also look you know started looking after him to do that and it was it was uh, very uh, I couldn't even know how to describe in words, but gut wrenching. You know, it was absolutely. You know, you have children, so you know. I imagine myself. I've got two grown-up children today. How it must have been for my dad, because I know what it was for me. It was traumatic. Right. Uh, what a what a testament to him, because you know when it comes to abuse, um, very often um, there's denial, and we don't listen to children. when they say something something wrong happened to me someone did something to me and um oftentimes the first impulse is to not believe the child um so you know a testament to your father's uh, attentiveness to that not only did he listen but he flew out and um you know of course there's 8 or 9 months of suffering um for your brother and um so what happened then you know and then uh, it got to a stage where we were treating him with the medicines and we were giving him like 27 tablets a day i remember you know three different types and it was yeah nine 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 doses i think they were and and he stabilized in the sense that he was not um, you know going you know the doctor wadia gave him 48 hours to live already got numerous increments of 48 hours over the you know next 8 9 months I don't know if he was in excruciating pain but I know he was joyous and happy around us you know he wanted to be loved all the time he wanted to be cuddled he wanted to be spoken to jokes he had ups and he had a lot of downs also and uh, you know we uh, at that time the room next door we had a guy who he called bullet man he was a guy by the name of bennett and he was a shippy who got shot of the coast of iran and he'd come back and he was bedridden in that hospital so whenever my brother could he'd go get into a wheelchair the nurse would carry take him there and bennett would you know lying in his bed uh, bullet man would tell him jokes about <laughs> and that's how 
you know, we lived our life. I had given up studies at that point. And then my dad said, you know, you will lose an entire year or two years. You're in your 10th grade, so you better go back. So I started back to school the following year. I didn't go to boarding school. I came back to my school in and uh, it's a school in Juhu, Gujarati school, Jamna by Narsi, which is a very now famous, you know, popular school in the Juhu scheme. So I started attending school, but I'd still wake up early in the morning, bathe him, and then, you know, have my bath and then go off to school. And then you know, they'd look after him the day, whoever was there. And then, and then one fine day at the end of July, um, you know, I got a call in school. The principal got a call and said, you know, send him urgently. And somebody had come to pick me up. I came down to the principal's office and uh, they said, you have to go home. You need it. When I reached home, you know, I found that my brother had passed on. You know, he could not swallow his own scrambled egg and, you know, he just passed away in my dad's arms. So how old was he? He was 11. He was, he was 11 and a half. He was 11 and a half. You've and, seen and, a lot already. Um, oh, and... that was my first <laughs> brush, brush with death. That was my first brush with death. And, you know, it became a constant companion after that in my life. But, you know, like they say, you know, your first experience is the most traumatic, traumatic one. And because it was my younger brother and I'd spent half, you know, at that time I was, i just turned 12 and a half and he was 11. And, you know, it was, uh, we'd spent our whole childhood together you know we would fight right. beat right. each other you know how siblings are oh and, and i know how boys are too. <laughs> he'll be together and he would do nothing without me so it was heartbreaking for me because i'd looked after him these nine months and you know bathed him clothed him joked with him you know washed everything and uh you know getting over that phase was extremely extremely difficult for me because um you know i didn't know how to react to death I didn't know, I don't think we're programmed as children to, to you know, I don't think adults are actually very, you know, programmed very much to, to, uh, to react to death. But it was a, you know, I started disbelieving God. I started wondering, you know, if this was what we were made for, how could you just, I, first of all, I didn't know that when you die, you go away. You know, as a young kid, when you're 10, 11, 12, you don't even know that that person is not going to wake up again. You read about it experience it the first time that's when you know that you know he's gone he's not coming back and this is this is pretty much it and then uh yeah that was wow thank you thank you for sharing that um yeah so was, this is about 1980 1981 that's right 81 81 31st July. and yeah. uh you know it takes a couple of months for me to recover. You never really recover from something like this, but you know, to go back, it took a month for me to go back to school again uh, and start studying. And uh, 82 was my 10th finals. You know, I was in the ninth. That I had. So it was a very tough period. And uh, the grief of him having left us has never left me till today. You know, it's though I've had a number of other of my family you know, your younger brother, it's, you know, uh, it's a completely different feeling. Uh, it's unnatural, it's, right? Because it is, whether it is, it's parents he, or whether it's children, it's a just... A grown-up, handsome, young man, yeah. you know, like that, um, 
just wither away and and pass away is is so cruel you know and and i saw my dad through that period and then i saw him you know at the funeral and i remember him telling me you know the biggest curse on earth is for a parent to bury their own child okay and it's it's yeah it's yeah so so it's you know let let's fast forward a little bit um in that you you've already seen so much in your in your young life and then june 23rd 1985 air india kanishka flight 182 is operating um on the montreal london delhi bombay route right and you've already shared with us that both your parents actually worked for air india but then your your stepmother had taken some time off to spend time with the family and tend to your brother um Who's who's on this flight at this time of year? Okay, I'll tell you. Um, actually, what happened after my brother died, the following year, my stepmother delivered a baby. That was she was named after my brother, and she became my sister. And you know, I looked after her and raised her. And we were supposed to go on a family holiday. Now you've got to, do, and and. Um, you know what happened so hard is, is uh, I'd gone on a holiday with my dad, like a boy's holiday to, to Thailand and Bangkok uh, a month before he passed away. Maybe that was God's way of, you know, saying that, you know, these are your last days with him. So spend them well. I don't know. But spent, you know, 10 days with him in Bangkok and he went to Tokyo and came back and we had a great time, you know, almost like, a you know, I was not yet 18. I was 17 still at that time. But like a coming of age, you finished your twelfth, twelfth uh, standard exam. So, you know, let's let's have a celebration. And I was to go. You know, they were going. We were all going to Canada. Oh, we have so in Canada. Okay. Uh huh. So whole family was going to Canada. Hmm. Two days before that, I get the twelfth standard results, and I failed. And I failed, and my dad was in shock. This is about fifty-two hours. Before they we would depart to Canada from India, okay, and there is shock, and it's like somebody has died in my home. I first of all didn't know how to come back from college and tell them I'd failed, and what did I fail in? I failed in English and I failed in Hindi, and those subjects which were impossible to have failed. We spoke only English at home, and you know I couldn't. <laughs> But I failed in those subjects. And, and I said, God, what do I do? My dad almost collapsed when I told him. You know, because uh, Swag is like this. We are a middle-class family. And, you know, for, for fa- you know, in those days, you don't earn that so much, you know, that much of money. So it's not only the shame of your son having failed. It's not only, you know, the stigma. It's the loss of a year. It's yes. so many emotions. So many. The fear of your future. I mean, so many things can be running what, through your head. What <laughs> was worse? Yeah. We had two friends who were in their 12th the previous year who couldn't cope with the pressure and kill themselves. They did, you know, committed suicide. They were neighbors. And that was that's something in India that you know we had a lot of in those days because the competition is so tough. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it may not be that tough, you know, in the U.S., but here it's so tough. It's crazy. And, and so 
they didn't know we should you know whether they should cancel the trip or not go at all or my mom should stay back with my baby sister and look after me or you know because the other thing is you only have 7 or 10 days to file for a reexamination of the paper revaluation in those days so i couldn't push off for a 15 day holiday with them right you had to I, stay I, i had to stay so somebody had to stay so my dad said he couldn't get off besides you know because he was on a duty you know they were going on a holiday with me. you know we were all going on a holiday he's operating the flight right and what does what does he do for the flight what is his he role is the in flight was the in flight supervisor so okay. he's in charge basically the entire aircraft comes under the commander of the pilot of the flight mm-hmm. and he was the in flight supervisor of the of the aircraft so we have this you know really serious discussion on the morning you know two days before they're supposed to leave in our bedroom in his bedroom and you know he says i don't think we should any we should just be with you because we are worried about what you will do so you know whether you will be so traumatized by this or whether you will and then my stepmother that silvia says you know i'll get off i will stay behind and i'll look after him and you carry on sandita and i stay behind that was my sister's name sandita so sandita became you know right sandita so and and uh, this discussion went on and then in the end i said listen that you're going to meet cousins of mine of theirs in his in toronto and montreal who they've not seen for more than 25 years 20 years so please don't back out of this and you know i'll handle myself i'll look after myself i will do whatever revaluation i have to do and i will be you know straightforward i'll look you know i'll be decent and i won't mess around now i'd had a, you know i also want to say this i after my brother's death and i'd had a little bit of a troubled period you know rebellious and stuff like that i started thinking and you know i started doing stuff and they were very troubled that you know i was going to go off the cliff and and uh, you know trauma does that to you sometimes you know maybe you know divorce so many things that happened in my life in that span of 3 4 years uh not an excuse or for what i but it's did. an explanation it is it is in some way and i think uh it served as a constant reminder in my life that this is what i should not be and i need to fight and and make sure that i make the best version of myself because you know of what has happened in my life already and and that you know a tough call uh but bottom line i convinced them that we must you must go they they got you know they agreed very reluctantly and my sister also decided she was just 2 3 years old so she was a kid she'd been born in 82 so you can imagine she was just 3 years old at that time 12 years old and uh, they left on the 11th night 12th and they went to frankfurt and uh, where she bought this huge cabbage patch doll she had taken with her and they then went to canada where they met up my cousins and stuff so my dad was operating the flight so they got couple of days in in frankfurt and three four days there then they went to toronto and then they went to montreal you know they had layovers and how the flight goes and the the irony of it all is that entire flight crew cabin crew and you know were all friends for many years together because this was a flight that took 12 to 14 days there was 
50 crew families on board. Now, you know, airline crew get free tickets. So they take family. You know, where you can show, spend four days in Frankfurt, four days in Toronto, four days in, you know, in Montreal, maybe two, three days in London. That becomes, a, you know, like a complete holiday in the school holiday season. Schools in India end and, and they, you know, they open just after June. So this was still holiday season. So this is this is families on vacation. Absolutely. And, and you know, we had some of our closest friends who have seen grow up, who have grown up with us, who were on that flight and, and people who'd been on postings in, in earlier years as well. And uh, it was an ecosystem, an entire family of families. And they this holiday, they must have had a grand time till they reached, you know, Toronto. And, and uh, you know, I didn't, they didn't call me. I didn't hear from them. But I got a message from another family who had, uh, you know, another crew member who said, you know, I met your dad, so-and-so, and he sends lots of love. And, you know, uh, he's waiting to come back. So just hang on. And by the time I'd done all my stuff, uh, I'd done my revaluation, I'd submitted it. And, uh, of course, I was alone, so I'd go out and, you know, well, I have generally boys, boys yeah. do what boys do. <laughs> but we, you know, stayed straight and narrow. Uh, I had college friends who'd come over and mess around. Uh, but it was still clean. Then the next thing I know is it was a Sunday, I think. And, and it was, um, I was at home and my servant gets a phone call, you know, and it was my sister's godparents. Now, you know, amongst uh, Christians, we have godparents, godfather, godmother, they when you christen them. And, and uh, what happened then was that they asked me where I was. And she said, he's at home, you know. I said, how is he? He's okay. I spoke on the phone to them. They said, are you okay? I said, yeah. Okay, we're coming to talk to you. Your dad has some message for you. So I said, fine, come over. And they live just down the road. So I said, dad has some message. And it was the 23rd, you know, must have been about 4.35 in, the, in India. Okay. I'm sorry. Probably about 12.31. I beg your pardon. 12.31. So it was about 12.31. They came over, they, they said they were coming over and maybe 1.30, give or take. They came over a little later and they had a cup of tea. I didn't have anything. And they said, how are you? Are you okay? You're, there's something wrong. So your dad wants you to come to London. So I said, okay, strange. I said, you know, suddenly out of the blue. So, you know, Ivan said, pack a bag and let's go. We'll go today. I said, today? I said, yeah, right now. So... What I didn't know, I didn't know what had happened. Wow. So there you're thinking your father, maybe there's an emergency or maybe now that your exam's over, he's saying, okay, bring him. We'll do half the holiday together. Yes, that's right. And oh my goodness. You know, we didn't have 24 seven TV. We didn't have internet in those days. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's very hard for many people in this generation to even imagine uh, that you can't just call you know, oh. across the ocean that quickly or that economically. In fact, you couldn't even call Delhi. You had to book a <laughs> call in those days in India. Right. We had to book a trunk call. I'm talking about 1985. Right. You know, right. still were just getting ISD, STD, direct facilities. Right. It was just coming up. Okay. Uh, it had just started after the, you know, Asian Games and then, you know, 84, 85. So uh, we didn't have STDIs. Anyway. I packed the bag and when we went to their home waiting for the transport to pick us up, 
they told me that something has happened and the plane may be missing. So we need to, so I said, really? So they sat me down and they said, we'll go there and we'll go and find. So I said, okay. So I went to the airport and I didn't think too much of it. You know, of course it'll be fine. It'll turn up. It's not that, you know, jumbo jet doesn't go missing. Right, right, exactly. It's off the radar, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, maybe landed or, you know, who's, who knows? And then I reached the air, airport, we board the aircraft and, you know, that a group of crew traveling with us, who I later found out were volunteers. And then we fly to London via Dubai. And it's on the aircraft that I realized, overhearing some other crew that, uh, you know, something has gone wrong and that aircraft is not there anymore. And that's when I start realizing some there's something wrong here. And I overhear a guy in the you know two seats away talking about it may have blown up or it may have crashed in the water. And I kept quiet till we took off from Dubai. And it was nighttime. And then I remember thinking that, God, if this is really gone down. And who's going to look after? I'm, I'm, my life is over. You know, I've lost everyone who was in my life and everyone whom I ever loved. I don't know. You know, initially I thought it's lost or it's gone in the water. They'll swim. You right. know, they'll get to the and we'll find them. We'll probably go and pick them up. And, you know, you know, we'll be together. Now, Ivan, who was traveling with me, realized because I was sobbing into the pillow and I was just you know, I was seated in the business class and just sobbing away. And and I just didn't know, you know, I wasn't even, a, I didn't even have the courage to look up, talk to anybody. And around eight o'clock uh, GMT, uh, he woke, woke me up and he came and said, and he just hugged me, you know, and, and he said, you know, I know we don't know what's happened and the aircraft is missing. But let's pray and, you know, hope that something happens. Now, they'd been flying all through the night, so there was really no uh, information of what had happened. But it was very coincidental, I realized now, you know, years later, that he woke me up around the same time. The aircraft had already been missing for 24 hours. Hmm. You know, 8, 11, 8, 12 GMT is when the time that the aircraft disappeared off the radar. I'd left the same night from India. And it was already early morning in Dubai. And when we came in, we were coming into London. We were about an hour, maybe an hour and a half or out of London. And or maybe two hours. It was already 8-11. And he, you know, I said a prayer. We both, and we landed. And I landed in London and I was, it was like a deer in headlights because, you know, the world press had gathered. Heathrow was still a small airport then, though it was a very busy one. And, you know, you, we had about six or seven families that came from India with me, all the crew families, really. I, I was going to ask that. So are there any other children on this? I mean, you're what, 16 or 17? 17, yes. 17. And, and oh, there were no other children that came with me, but there oh. were a couple of adults. Okay. A friend of mine, Ashwin, who lives in Florida. A uh, couple of them, friends who'd come. Friends meaning they became friends thereafter. But they were all adults. I was the only kid uh, who came. and and. Uh, I was the only one. So there was really nobody else who could have come in case. And and we landed up there. So and 
you know, this was like a culture shock. And then, you know, they quickly rustled us away into a, uh, you know, waiting bus and took us away. But, you know, when you, when you scour through footage of Heathrow, you will see all the families coming out of the customs and the, you know, and, and it was, that's the time I realized that this is far more than I have imagined. I'm crying because they're missing, but they must be gone forever because it had, you know, really, it had gone into another dimension. And I checked into the hotel. They took us into a hotel. Ironically, I'd stayed in that hotel the previous year. My dad was on a posting there uh, in London. And it's it was the Heathrow Penta. It's just overlooking the runway. And, you know, all the Air India crew used to stay there. So all the families were being put up there. There were families who had not yet come in from Canada, but there were some families who had come in from Europe and England, Frankfurt especially. And, and, and they were there. And uh, the crew that came in stayed there as well you know, who were volunteering. Uh, and, you know, I just went to the room and I went, tried to sleep and I cried and cried. And the next thing I woke up, and this is something I don't think that's ever been recorded in any, you know, in any TV show or anything, and in any way, in any media. I woke up at about three in the morning, two, maybe three or yeah, 2.33 there was an alarm going off. And it was a loud alarm and the phones kept ringing. And I tried to call, you know, I heard the alarm and I said, I'll call Ashwin, who's my friend, uh, who was in the next two couple of rooms away. And I tried to pick up and I heard the recording. Please evacuate the hotel. This is not a drill. This is an emergency. Evacuate. And I just, opened the door and I could see people running helter-skelter. There were emergency lights flashing in the corridors and I just landed in that city and I was going to search for my family who was missing now for 24 hours. I grabbed my passport. I was in short pants and a t-shirt. I didn't even have slippers. I just ran down the emergency es escape, found it and the Penta is a very funny funnily built hotel with lots of mazes. But we got to the fire escape and got down and there were two cops there and they directed us to the parking lot near the runway towards the runway and the entire hotel evacuated at 3 in the morning you will not believe there was a bomb threat and a bomb scare in the hotel and it was directed at Air India and the Air India families and this is on the 24th of June, 1985, you can check. And the bomb squad came in, the fire brigade, and we've got a hotel full of people sitting down, sitting on the floor. In You know, it was not raining, but it was damp. You know how London is? Right. And at three in the morning, there was dew, and it was, and we were freezing, our, you know. Yeah. Freezing I, off. I, I don't <laughs> but <laughs> that's what it was. And, you know, we had people in, in negligees. We had, it was just, Crazy. And, the, you know, imagine they had guards, that armed guards that came in, the bomb squad came in. And then they, from 3.30 in the morning till about 9, 8 o'clock in the morning, they were sweeping every room, every 
portion of the hotel. And I then understand that they found something in the coffee shop, which they did not disclose to anyone, but they did not let us enter the hotel. They took us across the road to the Radisson, which is now the Radisson Edwardian. It was then the Skyways Hotel and made us spend a couple of hours there. You know, they wanted to cool off. Whatever happened, happened. And then on that day, we heard that there were other bomb scares to other Air India flights, including the one I came on. You know? Wow. So this, and, you know, this is, it's interesting because, okay, not, first of all, Wikipedia is not a great resource. Uh, but when you find the most common resources, they only talk about two bombs. Yeah. The one in Japan well, and the been, one in coming out of Montreal. Yes. But, you know, this is, uh, some maybe it was you know not related to that maybe it was uh i don't know or but maybe it seems it, that it should be part of the conversation it should have been part of a major conversation right in fact when i disclosed that i was writing this book i've had people call me who were in london that day and said there were two other flights that had bomb scares now it's a fact that at that time the indian government and the Air India authorities and the Canadians had plenty of indications that a number of targets are going to be hit, especially Indian and especially Air India. This is also in the knowledge of the FBI. And I'll get that by the by when we're talking about it. But nobody even talks of, you know, what happened because these were only families, Air India families. And, and that's when they clamped everything down and they realized it may not be safe to take these families out of here at the moment. So we'll hold on to them. Otherwise, we were booked on the morning flight to go to Cork, where the search and rescue was still going on. And uh, we left later that e afternoon, once they cleaned and sanitized the entire space. So whether there was a bomb, whether there wasn't a bomb, whether it was some device, they didn't disclose at all. But this you're right, should have been part of some conversation because had 300 plus people who had evacuated the hotel at 3.30 in the morning. Right, exactly. Okay. It's, it's not, you know, something that happens coincidentally in every hotel. Exactly. And I, look, I'm a lawyer. I, I, you know, have profound um, commitment to evidence and, and having it being solid and, you know, um, incontrovertible, incontrovertible, but um, that, you know, we don't hear about all these different connected things. It, it, it points to the fact that justice hasn't been served. Oh, you know, uh, <laughs> justice hasn't been served is, is an understatement. And like you said, Wikipedia or any other doesn't report everything. I'll give you an example of this. The previous year was, you know, Operation Blue Star and then they killed Indira Gandhi on the 31st of October. The Khalistani Federation, KCF, Commando Force, threatened to take action against Hindus, against India, everything. Of course, the Sikh pogrom happened and that was a tragic part of our history. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gruesome. It was terrible. It should never have happened. And, and you know, I'm not one who believes in violence at all after losing so many family members 
do it. But nobody reports or records that an Air India jet was hijacked in November of 1984. But if you Google and you search properly on online, you will find it was hijacked by two Khalistani commando force people who took the aircraft from Delhi to Bombay to Maldives and then Seychelles where they surrendered. So this was part of the Babar Khalsa. They, they then came to, you know, part two of their plan, which I'll discuss later. But that said, you know, the next day we landed in Cork and uh, Ireland. And then we, you know, the, the, the second part of, of this traumatic story unfolds because by then they had almost given up looking for people. There was no more rescue. It was just a search and recovery. The search and rescue had ended because you don't expect, you know, generally a human being to last more than 36 hours in those cold, icy Atlantic waters. It's, it's unheard of, really. So um, we checked into the hotel in Cork and then, you know, the jury's hotel was where we were. It had become like an operations control room. Plus everybody was there. Lawyers. Plenty of lawyers had lined it up, of course. As you you know, can imagine, lawyers love to be where there is incident, where they can sue. And you know, you have uh, there were police, there was the Interpol, there was the FBI. Everybody had come there. Media, I'm sure. Media, of course. Uh, Canadian police, RCMP had not yet come, but I know the Indian cops were there, and and everybody was present. And they made Cork Regional Hospital like the hubs, hub, the you know, the nerve center of the entire accident scene, if you want to call it that. So the process of identification of family members began. And that was the most gut-wrenching thing you can ever, ever go through in your life. You know, just imagine a bomb has blown up an aircraft and there are some whole bodies, there are pieces of other people, there are, you know, disfigured bodies, disfigured faces. And you have Navy men and you have ship sailors who are bringing these remains home to, to the dock and they're being carried to the hospital. The process here that they undertook was um, Interpol gave us, you know, victim identification forms. You wrote down whatever you could remember about your family how they looked, what they weighed, how tall they were, what clothes they would likely have been wearing, if you knew, what kind of jewelry they wore, if they had dentures, if they didn't have, if they had filling, you know, these little details, birthmarks, scars, to aid in the process of identification. And, and that's when, you know, we, we started that process and I filled out those forms. Like, by then, there were quite a few families who'd come over directly, I think, from Canada to Shannon, from the US to, to Shannon. They were direct flights. Some came to Dublin and then came into Cork. So there were already quite a large number of people. And, uh, you know, like some other families told me, they, was, they were really lost. And I have to say at this point, you know, that, I mean, it's not that I wanted this to happen, but if it had to happen on any part of Earth, then God chose well. Because 
the Irish people were full of love, you know, full of kindness, and the way you know they do things in such a humane way. So it was. It was. It was. It was a. It was really, a, you know, an experience that I would not want even my worst enemy to go through. But the way the the love of the people of Cork was just so incredible. I can't tell you. And here I was a young kid. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.